We are going to pick up where we left off in our series uh, on soteriology, right? How, how God saves, that's what soteriology means. Uh, our series has been called The Doctrines of Grace, aka Calvinism. We took a, a short break to focus on Easter, <clears throat> and I tell you, I uh, really enjoyed the Easter service last Sunday. I love uh, that I'm privileged to be able to baptize people and preach the Word and, and have you as friends and church family, and it was just such a joy. I, I think our services have just been wonderful in the last month, not that they weren't before that, but just over the last couple of months, I've just really enjoyed all that the Lord's been doing here. Maybe this series has something to do with it, you know, that He's just helping us understand what He's done for us, and that's, that's where it's at. So far, we have covered the T in the tulip, right? Total depravity. We've uh, dealt with unconditional election. That's the U. And we have focused on the L, limited atonement. And we had to have three sessions on that one, three lectures on that one. And uh, so we've been focusing on the Calvinistic tulip, and we've looked at the first three letters. This morning, we're going to focus on the I, which stands for irresistible grace, irresistible grace. I think it's befitting that we pray before we get to work here. Father, thank you for this morning and this time that we've had together thus far. It's been wonderful. And just to, to be able to focus on your grace, and it's, it's by your grace that we are anything at all. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you that, that salvation and it's not our work. It's not something that, that we do. It's not something that we bring ourselves into, have to maintain, and can potentially lose. It's all by grace, all of it. Teach us about that today. Teach us what irresistible grace means. Help us to understand what that means. And uh, we pray that you receive all the praise and glory this morning for, for everything. You deserve it. You are worthy. We thank you in advance this message. Be glorified now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's important as we begin, we need to understand that when we talk about irresistible grace, when we use that phrase, that doctrinal term, we are not saying that the grace of God cannot be resisted. Okay, Just because we use that term, we're, we are not implying, inferring, or saying, or stating that the grace of God cannot be resisted. When we look at Scripture, we, we find examples throughout Scripture of, of sinners resisting the grace of God. We see sinners resisting the Holy Spirit. In fact, Scripture is replete with examples of this, and a, a great place to look would be in Acts chapter 7, verse 51 might be familiar with the deacon by the name of Stephen who was, boy, if you read his sermon there in chapter 7 of Acts, you'll find very quickly that he was probably one of the greatest preachers in all Scripture. And he said this to the religious leaders who were literally about to kill him for preaching the gospel. He says, you stiff-necked people, and that's a term that you find in the Old Testament everywhere, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised, uncircumcised in heart and ears. In other words, your hearts and your ears have not been changed at all. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. 
that's a, a classic example of spiritually dead sinners resisting the grace of God, resisting the Holy Spirit. So, irresistible grace does not mean that the grace of God cannot be resisted. We know from Scripture that it is. Uh, I know from my own personal life prior to being converted that I used to resist the gospel and the grace of God all the time. In fact, even as a believer today, I find myself resisting the grace of God at times when I'm being stubborn. The grace of God can be resisted. People resist it all the time. And really, to their own detriment. Amen? To their own detriment. When we speak of irresistible grace, we are saying that God can overcome a sinner's resistance to His grace whenever He chooses. That's what we mean. By saying irresistible grace, we're saying that God has the power and the authority and the sovereignty to overcome a sinner's resistance to His grace anytime He likes, that He can actually do that. That's what we mean when we say irresistible grace. Really what we're saying is we're saying we have an irresistible God if He so chooses to be. That's what we're saying. He can let a person resist Him as long as He wants, but when He decides, if He decides, He triumphs. That's what we're saying. Total depravity, we have learned, keeps sinners in a state of spiritual death and spiritual impotence. We can do nothing on our own. We are spiritually dead. What can a physical corpse do? Nothing. What can a spiritual corpse do? Nothing. We are dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians 1. We are lost, and God must intervene or nothing will change. Nothing is going to change with us. Left to ourselves, we will continue to love sin and continue to resist grace, spurn grace, reject grace. But if God has chosen us for salvation, if He has done this for us in eternity past, he will use His omnipotent power to overcome our spiritual deadness, to overcome our resistance to His grace. He will do this. He takes our blind, dead soul that has zero spiritual light or interest, and He opens our eyes so that we can see Christ no longer as foolish, no longer as stupid, no longer as boring, no longer as disinterested, no longer as false. We see Christ and His cross as compelling and, and powerful and wise and beautiful and wonderful, and we cannot not receive Him. That is the work of God in our hearts. That is what makes grace irresistible. This is something that God does for us. And I think it's also important that we pause just to say that when we speak of irresistible grace, or maybe a term that you've heard from this pulpit, John Calvin made it popular, common grace, we don't want to think of God's grace in various categories or that there's variations of His grace. 
God's grace is God's grace. God's grace isn't in any way really common, as Calvin said. And it's not always irresistible, and sometimes it comes with divine power and it overcomes. But we don't want to think of God having varying degrees of, of grace. God's grace is God's grace. So when we talk about irresistible grace, we don't want to think of a, a class of grace or a type of grace. God's grace is God's grace. Now, there are many passages, many, many passages in Scripture that, that point to irresistible grace, kind of shout, this is irresistible grace here in the text. There's a great many of them. And they, of course, use different words to communicate this doctrine. Words like draws, uh, like called. Uh, in fact, I'd like for you to go ahead and turn over to John chapter 6, verse 44. It'll be the first verse we'll take a look at. John chapter 6, verse 44. Behind the, the verse itself, we have a context. It's important for us to have a general understanding of what's going on here. Jesus was speaking to a large, mixed crowd of, of regular folks and, and religious leaders, all sorts of people, probably thousands and thousands, if not hundreds here. Uh, he was speaking to this crowd, and basically this crowd, he, actually he's, he's in Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, and, and what transpires here, the day before that or the evening before that is when he fed the 5,000 on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So the very next morning, he's not there anymore. He's over here in Capernaum, and he's teaching in a synagogue. His disciples are with him, and that big crowd that got fed fish tacos the day before comes over and finds him here in the synagogue. There was 5,000, it says, men who were seated and fed. We, we don't have an account of how many women and children there were. This group made its way back over to the city and came to find Jesus. And, and the issue is, and Jesus knows their hearts. Remember, he's, he's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows that they're there for more fish tacos and not him. He knows that, that you know, he, he's like the drive through worker at Taco Bell right now. I don't know, if, if Taco Bell ever started selling fish tacos, I would run and move to Sonora. Could you imagine a fish taco from Taco Bell? They don't even have regular real tacos there. I don't even, that's not even regular meat. And somehow I find myself ordering it twice a week and then paying for it twice a week. But they're there not necessarily because of him and because of that he's the bread of life and that he offers, you know, salvation in, in his person and work. They're there just to get, you know, whatever they can from him. They want more fish. They want more flat bread. They weren't interested in eternal life and the eternal life that he came to secure. They were interested in his miracles and in the things that he could provide them with. It kind of sounds like a great many people today, right, that are more interested in the, in the blessing than the blesser, right? And this is what he says to them. He says this, knowing that they have rejected him, not all, but the majority, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
And I, and this is hugely important, the second half of verse 44, and I will raise him up on the last day. And I want you to underline that word draws. If you don't mind circling that or underlining that in your Bible, if you don't like writing in your Bible, put it down on something, write it on your hand if you have to. That word means irresistible grace. That's what it means. That's what it represents. That's what it refers to. When the Father draws a sinner to Christ, He does it effectually, meaning the sinner will come. The person comes to Christ if they have been drawn to Christ. Why is this? How is this a possibility? It's because prior to drawing that sinner, God changes their heart. And in the changing of the heart and the changing of the mind, there's a changing of the attitude, the changing of disposition, the changing of desire and, and want. So within that moment of God actually drawing somebody to Christ, there is a miracle that takes place. We call that the miracle of regeneration. He regenerates them. He changes their mind and heart. He replaces their heart of stone with a heart of flesh, says in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And, and this component, this supernatural occurrence, this supernatural work that God does in the heart of the sinner, it is what makes the grace of God irresistible. Just think about the logic. If a person is spiritually dead and their sin has no desire for God, something has to interrupt that. They've spent their whole life spurning and rejecting and scoffing at the grace of God, and then all of a sudden they value it, and they love it, and they thirst for it, and they hunger for it, and they flee to Christ for it. Something has to happen in them for that to happen. They, they're not going to do it on their own. They, A, cannot do it. B, they will not do it. So something has to occur within them before they will do that. And you know, we've used examples here of a person who's drowned and dead on the ground. Before they can do anything and show any signs of life, they have to be brought to life. Right? A dead, drowned man's not going to get up and do the mamba. He's got to be brought to life before he can get up and do the mamba or the running man or whatever your dance is. I dated myself. God replaces the heart of stone. The grace of God becomes irresistible. irresistible. It becomes what the person wants and understands and comprehends. And then when God draws this newly converted person to Christ, they come freely without any hesitation. They immediately fly to Christ for salvation. So you've got God drawing people to Christ, but prior to them being drawn, He has to do something to their hearts because they will not even accept the drawing. They will not come to Christ unless something has been done for them. And the Scripture teaches this over and over and over. We've talked about free will and we've... We've talked about these things. Have we not said over and over that there's two types of people in the world? 
those who are slaves to sin and those who are slaves to righteousness. There's no in-between. If you're a slave to sin, how is a slave to sin going to break out of his own bondage to fly to Christ? Something has to be done for him or her. And that's what we're talking about here. Regeneration occurs, therefore the grace of God becomes irresistible. The person has a new heart, an attitude toward God, toward grace, and wants it for the first time ever. Now, our Arminian brothers and sisters argue that this particular verse teaches that God draws all people to Christ. Every man, woman, and child without exception, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. He draws everybody indiscriminately. It doesn't matter. This is what they say. This is what they teach. In fact, I think this is probably what I used to believe. Now, I just want you to think about the verse that you have before you, and I want you to read it slowly and carefully because the answer is in the verse. Think about this. If this is a, as the Arminian says, and again, we love our Arminian brothers and sisters. There may be some in this room. We love you. Think about it logically. Okay, I want you to think about this logically. I want you to think about this biblically. If God draws all men, women, and children, regardless to Christ, if He draws them all, then according to this verse, all will be raised to eternal life on the last day because Christ said He raises those whom are drawn to Him by the Father. Do you see the verse? What does it say? The Father draws them, I raise them. That's what the verse teaches. Do you have eyes to see it and ears to hear it? Look at the two. They're, they're, you can't disconnect them. Those whom the Father draws, Christ will raise to eternal life at the second advent when He comes back. There's a connection between, between drawn and eternal life. The one who is drawn will be raised. This is what your verse teaches. So I don't, I don't understand how people can take this to mean that God draws all people. The answer is in the verse itself. You have to read the rest of the verse. You can't stop short. Don't stop at the drawing. Look at what happens to those who are drawn. It's right in front of you. I didn't write this. If the Father, logically, if the Father draws everyone and the Son raises everyone, because that would be the meaning of the verse if the Arminian is right, then universal salvation is a reality and there is no Sheol. There is no resurrection of the dead, that's unbelievers. There is no resurrection of the dead unto judgment. There is no lake of fire. Let's just, let's just scrub out and mark over Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. There is no hell. If the Father universally draws everyone, Christ says, then therefore the result is I universally raise all to eternal life. Because that's what the verse says. So it cannot be true. I've never met an Arminian who believes in universal salvation. I have yet to meet one. Because that's what they would be promoting here if the Father draws all, because the verse says that Christ raises all then. Well, actually what the verse does is it limits the scope, right? We talked about limited atonement over the course of three weeks. 
Those who are drawn by the Father will be raised by the Son. The opposite is therefore true. Those who are not drawn by the Father will not be raised by the Son. That's the meaning of John 6, 44. And I love who Jesus is saying it to, a whole bunch of people who have been rejecting Him for many days. What He's essentially saying is, that's fine if you don't believe in Me, I won't lose any that the Father has given Me. I've got, I've got people that He's given Me. And He will draw them to Me. I can see that you're not being drawn, but He will draw them to Me. And guess what? I'm going to raise them on the last day. It's almost like Christ and His humanity is reassuring Himself by saying this to a group of people who are basically flipping Him the spiritual bird. That's okay. You're not drawn to Me. And those who the Father draws will come to Me and I will raise them. Just think about that. Those who are not drawn by the Father will not be raised by the Son. And the existence of Sheol and the resurrection under judgment, the lake of fire, these things all prove that God does not draw all people to Christ. The reality of hell proves that He does not draw all to Christ. It proves that He only draws some, those whom He has chosen. Christ will raise up on the last day only those who are regenerated, that is the work of the Spirit, and drawn to Him by the Father through irresistible grace. This is what John 6 teaches over and over. It is that group, those whom the Father draws, those whom Christ will raise, it is they alone who have been given to Him by the Father. Back up and read verse 39. They alone have been given to Him by the Father. He shall lose none of them, but raise them up on the last day. Verse 39. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the elect. We're not talking about everybody. Not even close. The verses do not permit any sort of universal salvation or universal calling or universal drawing. It's just not in your Bible. You think it is in other places? We'll deal with that. And you know what else John 6, shows? It shows that coming to Christ is impossible apart from the supernatural, preemptive work of the Father. If the Father does not change the heart and draw the sinner through irresistible grace, the sinner will not come to Christ for salvation or be raised unto eternal life on the last day. If God doesn't do His preemptive, supernatural work in the heart of a spiritually dead person, ain't nothing changing. He's got to do it. He has to make them new, create with them a new heart, a new spirit, a new attitude, a new mind. This is why Scripture talks about us becoming new creations in Christ. He must make us a new creation with new values and new desires before anything is going to transpire. Up to that point, the grace of God will be resisted and resisted and resisted. It's resisted because we have no taste for it, no love for it, no passion for it, no desire for it. And He changes all of that. You must understand that, that regeneration and being drawn to Christ, it's a package deal. It's a package deal. You can't have one without the other. And we need to get the order right. 
Regeneration always precedes being drawn. Our total depravity has to be overcome, overridden before anything's going to happen. God first changes our hearts and minds. His grace becomes irresistible. He draws us to Christ. And guess what? We come to Christ without hesitation. Without hesitation. God enables, we embrace, and we fly to Christ. And at this particular moment, the gifts of repentance and faith are also granted by God. 2 Timothy 2.25, Ephesians 2.8. We turn away from our life of sin and unbelief to Christ for salvation. We believe on Him, we trust in His person and work, and we begin to follow Him. This is what we do. I like what John Murray wrote. His book, uh, Redemption Accomplished, and uh, I think it's something accomplished, I don't know, I'll find the title for you, I had it written down somewhere, but... It is phenomenal. It deals with these issues. Every Christian should read it. Murray said this, When a sinner comes to Christ in the commitment of faith, when the rebellious will is renewed and tears of penitence begin to flow, it is because a mysterious transaction has been taking place between the persons of the Godhead. What a cool statement. The Father has been making a presentation, a donation to His own Son. So perish the thought that coming to Christ finds its explanation in the autonomous determinations of the human will. It finds its cause in the sovereign will of the Father. He has placed upon this person the constraint by which he has been captivated by the glory of the Redeemer and invests in him all his interests. Christ has made wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Here is irresistible grace. Uh, this is why I quote him, because I just can't write like that. That's above my pay grade. Give me a raise and I'll try. <laughs> it's not happening. It's a wonderful statement that, that's compact and, and precise and concise, and it nails down what's happening as that person comes. Remember, the Father has given to Christ. And so there is an exchange going on. There is something happening where, where, where when I'm repenting and, and trusting in Christ, God is working that out in me and He is presenting and giving me to Christ as a gift. Oh, it's wonderful to think of salvation like that. It's precisely what our Bibles teach. The word draws in John 6, it points to irresistible grace. That's, that's what it is. God regenerates and draws people to Christ through irresistible grace. He really changes the heart. The grace of, His grace becomes irresistible. We come. And it's not to everyone because we know not everyone comes. We know that hell is real. We know that Sheol is real. We know that judgment is coming. We know that the world is full of unbelievers. We know the world is full of people who reject Christ and will unto death. We know that people die in their sins all the time. They despise and hate the grace of God. So it can't possibly be all. It's namely those whom He has given to the Son, the elect. It's Christ's bride, the church. There's another word in the Bible that means the same thing, and it appears much more frequently. You don't see draws very often. It's the word called. The word called. We see it in Romans 
1, 6. You can turn over there if you want. Romans 1, 6. This particular line appears in Paul's initial greeting to the Christians in the Roman church and the churches in Rome or in the church of Rome. He's writing to Christians there. And he says this in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Christ. Called to belong to Christ. We see it again in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. You can swing over there if you want. Romans chapter 8, verse 30, where Paul describes the, what we call the golden chain of salvation. Romans 8, 30, he says this, And those whom He predestined, He also called. There it is. And those whom He called, there it is again, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Here's your golden chain. See, called twice there, referring to irresistible grace there in Romans 1.6. And then we see it again, if you want to swing over a little bit further to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. In this particular text or context, Paul is thanking God for giving the Corinthians grace in Christ Jesus. In verse 9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, or into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Called there refers to irresistible grace. We see it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. You can fly over there if you want. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. This is where Paul is describing his, his own conversion, his own regeneration, his own conversion to Christ, and he goes on to describe his ministry there. Chapter 1, verse 15, verse 15 says, But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace, called me by His grace. In each of these particular verses, and they're very special verses, but in each of these special verses, the word called refers to irresistible grace. It points to that doctrine. Called is, is actually, in, in these the meaning of called here and the meaning of draws over in 644 of John, they basically mean the same thing. They're synonymous with one another. In other words, call, in other words called is synonymous with draws. They mean the same thing. When God draws a sinner to Christ, He is calling a sinner to Christ. To be drawn is to be called, and to be called is to be drawn. Same thing. And the exact same process exists, beginning with regeneration. Okay, God regenerates, causes the spiritually dead sinner to be raised to spiritual life, to be born again. John 3, He regenerates them. The grace, His grace becomes irresistible and God calls, He draws, He calls the sinner to Christ and they come to Christ without hesitation. That's the meaning in each of those passages I just read to you. 
that you looked up. Now, our Arminian brothers and sisters argue that these verses and many others, but these verses in particular, they teach that God calls all people to Christ. God doesn't just draw all people to Christ, as they say from John 6, 44. These verses here teach to them that He calls all people to Christ, every one of them, every man, woman, and child without exception. He calls them all. Everyone is being called to Christ. Logically, if this were true, then all people would come to Christ because the calling we're looking at is effectual, just like the drawing. It produces, this calling that we're looking at, it produces positive results, positive spiritual results. It has an effect on the person. It causes a result. Just think about the verses that we just read. I'll walk back through them real quick. In Romans chapter 1, verse 6, the first one we read, being called results in belonging to Christ. You want to go back and look at the verse? Go ahead. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, being called results in justification. What does justification mean? It means to be declared right before God or by God. Go back and read the verse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, being called results in fellowship with Christ. That's what the verse says. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, being called results in the revelation of Christ. In other words, in knowing Christ. Galatians chapter 1, verse 16a. So in each of those instances, in each of those occurrences, the word called brings about a particular result. And we know that not everyone experiences those results, don't we? We know that, that people hate Christ. We know that people reject Christ. We know that people perish apart from Christ every day. We know that Sheol is, is real and it's filled with unrepentant, unbelieving sinners. If God calls all people to Christ like the Arminian says, and if God's call is effectual like these verses clearly say, why do people continue in unbelief? Why do people continue to reject Christ? Why do people go down into Sheol, to hell, to suffer torment, and to await final judgment? Why? If He calls everyone unilaterally in the exact same manner, then why do we have a hell? You see, what happens is the Arminian creates the exact same dilemma here in all of those verses as they do in chapter 6, verse 44 of John. It's the same dilemma. If God, as they say, calls all people and His call is effectual, as these verses clearly say, then universal salvation is a reality. There is no shield. There is no resurrection under judgment. There is no lake of fire. There is no hell. That's the reality if God calls all with an effectual call. The calling of God in these verses is effectual. It produces a positive spiritual result. They come to Christ because they have been effectually called. Why? Because this calling is accompanied by regenerating power. 
that transforms the mind and the heart and makes the grace of God irresistible. The sinner who is dead in sin is made alive to God, born again, and he or she comes to Christ without any hesitation. The grace of God becomes the sweetest thing in the world to them. That which was bitter to them becomes sweet. The drawing of God is effectual. The calling of God is effectual. And since the majority of sinners refuse to repent and come to Christ, we know that God does not draw or call all to Christ. It's clear. The drawing and the calling of sinners to Christ is limited in scope, right? God directs His omnipotent power and irresistible grace toward whom He has given to His Son, John 6, 39, and in a multitude of other places. And that particular group we refer to as the elect, and it's not six or eight people or just this church. Revelation 7, 9 says you can't count them all. Now, it could be, the problem could lie here, it could be that the Arminian doesn't understand the difference between the effectual call and the general call. There's two types of callings. I think this is probably where the issue is. The effectual call, as we have seen, produces a positive spiritual result because it is accompanied by regenerating power. The Holy Spirit comes in power, changes the heart, the person answers the call. They love the grace of God now. That they didn't do before. It brings sinners to life and leads them to Christ, right? That's the effectual call. We see that in Scripture. We've seen that in the passages I just read to you. The general call occurs whenever the gospel is preached. Everyone who hears the gospel is being called in a general way by the one who is preaching the gospel. If I start talking about the life, death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how salvation is found in Him alone and He died to save sinners, everyone in this room is hearing the gospel, is being called to Christ or to the gospel or to the truth in a general way. Every time a preacher speaks it, it's a shotgun blast. There's a general calling that goes out. The general call does not discriminate. It just goes out to everyone and it, it pings off of the ears of everyone hearing. And the general call will be rejected by sinners unless it is accompanied by the Holy Spirit and the effectual call, right? It's in that moment, if that's the case, that, that, that during the general call, God is calling some people within that group that's hearing to Himself effectually. That's where, what, faith comes by the hearing of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is working that miracle of regeneration in their heart, making the grace of God irresistible, and they are wanting to come to Christ, and they do it. It happens during the general call as that gospel is shotgunned out there to everyone. Everyone is being called in a general way, but God might be calling some within that group in an effectual way, right? That's how it works. That's the difference between the general and the effectual call. That the general call will be rejected unless 
the Holy Spirit attends that and changes hearts and makes the grace of God irresistible. In Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24, Jesus told a parable that illustrates how sinners reject the general call. This is His purpose for this parable. Luke 14, 15 to 24, a man gives a banquet and he invites many, many people to attend. Many people to attend. But the invitees begin to make up excuses for why they can't come. One said, I can't come because I bought a field and I need to go take a look at it. It's like, you bought the field without looking at it? You've got other issues, pal. There could be 18 Ford Pintos piled up on that thing. Have fun. Literally, I, I, can't come to your, I can't come to your banquet because I have a field that I bought and I need to go take a look at it. Another said, I can't come because I, I bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go examine them. I need to look them over. Again, you don't know what you bought? You just bought them indiscriminately? Probably a couple of giraffes and rhinos in there. And then another one says, I can't come because I just got married and I need to care for my wife. Literally, that's what it says. I'm thinking at this point, the honeymoon phase is over. The wife wants him to take a break. Go to the banquet, honey. But he doesn't want to go. You know, these are just excuses is all they are. Yep. And really, that's not the point. In a similar way, when sinners hear the general call of the gospel as it goes out, they come up with excuses for not repenting and trusting in Jesus, don't they? Yeah. That's the meaning of the parable. Well, I don't, I don't need Jesus because I'm a good person. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yesterday, God was telling... Uh, guy, uh, God. He probably thinks he's a God <laughs> a, with a lower G. A guy was telling me, you know, every person chooses their own path. Well, there's, a, there's a, an ounce of truth to that, but... You know, they're also either a slave to righteousness or sin, so they're also under the sway of the devil and these things. I don't need Jesus because I'm a, I'm a good person. I don't need Jesus because I've got tons of religion, man. You know, I, I have worn a hole in those kneelers up, down, up, down. You guy's good at squats. I don't need Jesus because I, I prayed a prayer at a crusade. Yeah, but didn't you pray to Jesus? I don't know. I just prayed. I invited Him into my heart. I don't need Jesus because, guess what? God loves me as I am. Every time I go to church, they're talking about the unconditional love of God, and He loves me just as I am, and, and I can come to Him just as I am, and so I really don't see any need for Jesus. I'm okay as I am. And then as the general call is made, there's a great many that just say, I don't need Jesus because He's just not even real. This is a farce. He never lived and never did any of the things that you claim. That's what happens when the general call is made. This is what Jesus is teaching His audience. He's using a banquet and people rejecting their invitations. They reject His invitations as He put out the gospel in a general call way. That's all he's saying. But 
if the general call is accompanied by the Holy Spirit and the effectual call, the hearer will be regenerated. They will be born again. They will be given a new heart. And they will be drawn to Christ by the Father through irresistible grace. And he or she will come to Christ without hesitation. And I'll tell you, this is, this is great because this explains why some sinners respond positively to the gospel and others do not. Have you ever wondered why that is? If you think that the ability to do that lies in the individual, you have no clue. Is that the Lord saying, chill out, Phil? Is it? Putz. This general call and effectual call, it helps to put some handles and some grips on why some respond positively to the gospel and others do not. Have you ever wondered why that is? You see, the, the difference lies not in the individual, but in the call. There's where the difference is. If God calls a sinner effectually, they will come. They will come. If the sinner is called generally only, they will not come. Now, the Arminian brother and sister here, they argue that individuals determine the outcome since God calls all people equally. He says, the call is made and it's up to us to accept it. <laughs> Obviously, this person does not understand the human condition, doesn't have a right view of anthropology scripturally. We go to Murray again here. He has a great comment on this. He says, in much of present-day evangelism, it is assumed that the one thing man can do in the exercise of his own liberty is to believe in Christ for salvation. It is supposed that this is the one contribution that man himself must make to set the forces of salvation in operation, and that God himself can do nothing towards this end until there is this crucial decision on man's own part. Oh my goodness. He says, in this assessment, there is total failure to reckon with human depravity. Murray is saying that if it were up to man to determine the outcome, man would be in big trouble because man is totally depraved and incapable of responding positively to God. That's all he's saying in a fancy way. If individuals have the ability to determine the outcome, there is no need for the Holy Spirit. There is no need for regeneration. There is no need for grace. We become our own saviors, don't we? One of the Arminian might say, well, God just kind of uses His grace to assist us. How do you assist a dead man? You have to, you can't, I, if I keep pushing him, maybe he'll come to life. He has to be brought to life. It's not an assistance. It's a resurrection that takes place, a spiritual resurrection, a miracle. The idea of assisting us is ridiculous. People who are spiritually dead don't need assistance. They need to be raised to life. See, if, if you start saying that, then you diminish 
the power of sin. You're saying that sin has not killed us spiritually, and it has, and the Scripture says this over and over and over. Sin is just something that causes us trouble. Sin is just a disease that needs to be cured. Sin is just a, it just causes problems for us. It just hinders us spiritually. No, sin has killed us spiritually. We are dead. Dead. We have to be raised to life for the grace of God to be irresistible, to come to Christ. And, and think about it. If the Arminian is right, if it's just up to us, you know, God just kind of calls everyone in a, in a universal, unilateral way, and it's just kind of hanging out there, and it's up to us to answer the phone. You know, hey, Phil, you got to pick up the phone, right? By the way, I only take texts now, usually. So God has to text His call to me. If this were true then the individuals who accept the call would have something to boast about, wouldn't they? Because some do and some don't. Look at how I accepted the call. I must be more sensible and smarter than those who don't answer the call. I must be more humble. It's funny when people brag about their humility. Just prove that you don't have it. I must be more in tune with spiritual realities than the average Joe, because I tell you what, I answered that altar call, but the 18 buffoons next to me didn't, and they're still dead in their sins. Look at what I did. You'd have something to boast about if it was up to you, and you were able to secure this thing on your own, or even with a little bit of assistance from God. I'm a special person, aren't I? You know what, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 just puts the kibosh on any of this thinking. It says, we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. Now the Arminian says, well, it's a gift you must receive. <laughs> Don't understand the way the spiritual giftedness of God works, do you? It's a miracle that He's worked in your heart. It's not a, a gift that you accept or reject. Quit thinking about a birthday party where little Jimmy doesn't want your present. It's not the way it works. By saying it's a gift, that means that it has nothing to do with you. Nothing. You played a role. Spiritually dead sinner. That was the role you played. We are saved by grace through faith. This is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, dot, 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 so that no one may boast or can boast. Look, to be saved by grace is to be saved by grace. Salvation is all of grace. The grace of election. The grace of predestination the grace of regeneration, the grace of calling or being drawn, the graces of repentance and faith, the grace of justification, the grace of adoption, the grace of sanctification, the grace of glorification. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That is your salvation. Grace from the beginning Grace on to, in, to eternity. Never-ending grace. Why? 
so that no one can boast about the role they played in their salvation. I accepted the call. I decided for Christ. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I followed Jesus. I kept the faith. Newsflash, prideful saint. Apart from grace, you'd be nothing. Dead in your sins. Dead. You'd still be spiritually dead. You'd still be in your sins. You'd still be a slave to sin. You'd still be blind and lost. You'd still be in darkness under the power of Satan. If it weren't for the grace of regeneration, you'd still despise the grace of God and you would still hate Christ. It is true, it is true that we come to Christ. It's true. Don't let anyone tell you that, that that's not true. It's true. We do come to Christ. But don't be ignorant of how we come to Christ. Our hearts are made totally new by the omnipotent power of God. He raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Grace becomes sweet and irresistible. God draws us and calls us to Christ, and we come to Christ without hesitation. There is no resistance, none. Everything that got in the way has been taken away and removed. And that everything is that sinful, wicked nature. It's gone. No one comes to Christ kicking and screaming. I've heard people say that. Well, I came to Him kicking and screaming because I didn't want to give up my life of sin. Then you weren't born again. And maybe you still aren't. Nobody comes to Christ kicking and screaming. Nobody. We come to Him freely. We come to Him joyfully. We come to Him tearfully because God has enabled us to see Him as He truly is. We are entranced by His beauty, and we fall at His feet. We fall prostrate. We bow before Him, and we invest our all in Him. This, beloved, is irresistible grace. That's how it works. That's how it works. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for teaching us about irresistible grace, which is the outworking of being born again, being regenerated by the Spirit. Thank You for clarifying these things for us. Thank You for reminding us that salvation is, is not of our effort or works or deeds, that it is entirely of grace, grace going all the way back to election, grace going all the way forward to glorification at the second advent and resurrection. Father, we thank you that you have drawn us to Christ through regeneration and irresistible grace, and Christ promises to raise us on the last day when he comes back. Oh, glory, hallelujah for that. Thank you for instructing us by your grace this morning. I pray that we wouldn't have hard hearts. I pray that, that if we came in here with theological six-shooters, that you have disarmed us 
Father, may we embrace your word. May we embrace it and humble ourselves and bring you glory through this wonderful salvation of grace that you have bestowed to the most unworthy people, us. You are so good. We love you. May we sing to you. We pray in Christ's matchless name. Amen.